Hey listeners, a big theme of this episode is the gossip that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy, and legendary right-wing attorney Roy Cohn may have had erotic relationships with other men. I want to be clear that there is no new evidence that proves or disproves these stories. By definition, gossip is a believable rumor that isn't necessarily factual. In addition, there are a few passages in this episode where my guest had some trouble with feedback. I apologize in advance for these small distractions. I think we should keep in mind when we refer to Democrats, when we refer to the administration, that there are definitely two groups of Democrats as of today. Number one, there are the millions of loyal Americans who have voted the Democrat ticket. Individuals who are just as loyal, who hate communism just as much, and love America just as much as the average Republican. That's one group. On the other hand, there is that small, closely knit group of administration Democrats who are now the complete prisoners and under the complete domination of the bureaucratic, communistic Frankenstein which they themselves have created. Ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't be called that administration Democrat Party. To call them Democrats is an insult to the millions of loyal American Democrats. They shouldn't be called Democrats. They should be referred to properly as the Commie-Crap Party. Democrats on the left should be referred to as the Commie-Crap Party. Does that sound familiar? As it turns out, making up disparaging nicknames that cast doubt on political opponents' integrity isn't a form of incivility that originated in the age of Trump. What you just heard was Joseph R. McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin from 1947 to 1957, campaigning for a fellow Republican in 1954. At the time, McCarthy was fighting for his political life. For the previous three and a half years, after McCarthy's February 9, 1950 announcement in Wheeling, West Virginia, that he had a list of known communists working at the State Department in his hand, the senator from Wisconsin had kept himself in the news by tarnishing liberals and leftists in and out of government as agents of the Soviet Union. But by the time he delivered this speech about commiecrats, McCarthy's dominance was coming to an end. During the nationally televised Army McCarthy hearings in June 1954, Joseph Welsh, chief counsel for the Army, had successfully defended his clients. In the process, he turned the tables on McCarthy and his staffers, Roy Cohn and G. David Shine, casually referencing possible pixies and fairies that had infiltrated the committee. This not only cast doubt on a doctored photograph that had been entered into evidence, but it also caused laughter to erupt in the crowded committee room as Cohn shifted nervously in the seat beside McCarthy. McCarthy struck back, insinuating that a young attorney at Welsh's white shoe Boston firm, Hale and Dorr, was a known communist. It was then that Welsh, after numerous protests failed to stop McCarthy's insinuation, uttered these famous lines. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You have done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? Welsh's call for decency was not just a reference to the attack on his young associate, 
but yet another way of drawing attention to the gossip everyone in the room and many in the television audience knew, that Cohn and Shine were allegedly in a romantic relationship, and McCarthy, married to prominent anti-communist activist Jean Kerr, not only had sex with men, but was enamored of one or both of his handsome young staffers. Finally, in December 1954, the Senate acted. A coalition of Democrats and liberal Republicans voted to condemn McCarthy. That's the language in the resolution, not censure, as many have claimed, for numerous offenses against the ethics rules and dignity of the Senate. But these were not the only prominent anti-communists who gossiped and were gossiped about. The unmarried FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, deployed homosexual rumors as a weapon and at the same time seemed to have an unusually close friendship with his second-in-command, Clyde Tolson. As Beverly Gage and I discussed in Episode 6, the two were often seen double-dating with pretty women, dates that never seemed to result in romance or marriage. As historian Christopher Elias argues in his book, Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation, these three men, Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn, shaped right-wing politics in the second half of the 20th century with their shameless use of gossip, insinuation, and rumor to intimidate their political opponents. Arguably, these men paved the way for the disinformation and lies that pervade today's political media strategies, as well as the insistence on brute masculinity as a performative strategy. But as Elias points out, these tactics didn't come from nowhere. They were close kin to a 20th century tabloid and gossip magazine culture that Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn leaked to and were perpetually threatened by. Join Chris and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 15, Rumor Has It. To the show, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. When I first picked up this book, the trio of Hoover, Cohn, and McCarthy made complete sense. But how is it that these three men ought to be connected in the public mind? I started with Cohn, uh, Roy Cohn, now famous because of his association with Donald Trump, lawyer from New York City, uh, who had worked as an assistant for Joseph McCarthy. At the beginning, there was this idea that there's this fundamental paradox about Cohn, and he's involved in the Lavender Scare, which is the hunting of homosexuals in the United States government in the 1950s, associated with the Red Scare. But the fundamental paradox about him, of course, is that while he was engaged in this homophobic witch hunt, he himself was engaged in numerous homosexual affairs, and he ends up dying of AIDS in 1986. So I saw Cohn in many ways as the fundamental practitioner of this kind of paradoxical political identity that I wanted to unwrap. 
And then like all historians do, I think I started looking backward. You start looking for antecedents and the immediate antecedent was uh, Joe McCarthy, who Cohn was working for during the early 1950s uh, and who really helped Cohn make his career in Washington at a very young age. And then in many ways, McCarthy's antecedent in some of the language that McCarthy was using, the tactics he was using, and then ultimately some of his goals from a conservative, stabilizing perspective was J. Edgar Hoover. So by putting these three men in conversation, you took a moment at the Cold War that was concerned with things about sexuality, gender, uh, power, national security, and rumors and insinuation. And then you could start to trace it back to the early 20th century and really understand how that moment came to be. Well, and of course, these men are linked in two ways. One is they're all, three of them, rumored to be gay. Mm -hmm. Second, they are both adept at manipulating a certain kind of popular culture, which is gossip, but they're also the object of gossip. And so they are sort of walking this very, very fine line between using insinuation as a weapon against others and having to guard against being undermined and attacked by insinuation themselves, right? Yeah. And I think it's really funny. I think they're all three of them very adeptly use insinuation in, as you uh, noted, in two ways. They are both attacking their enemies with insinuation uh, and using gossip in a way that maybe we're more familiar with it as a way to question, insinuate, or otherwise challenge your political, personal, and professional enemies. But at the same time, they're also using gossip in kind of the sense of positivity. They're using positive gossip is the way uh, I talk about it in the book as putting things out there about themselves. So, for example, J. Edgar Hoover, who I know you are familiar with from your wonderful book on him, was a master of this. And I think you talk a lot about this in The War on Crime, but he's a master at putting gossip out there about himself that is going to make him look like the macho masculinist G-man, the one who's professional, who's in control, who's adept, always knows what he's doing. So for example, there are moments where he'll come off a plane and there's a scrum of reporters waiting for him and a dark haired woman in a very fashionable trench coat will come up, whisper something in his ear and then go off. And Hoover won't say what it was, but all of the reporters will insinuate, oh, what was that girl doing? And he will not play down those rumors at all. Same thing with Cohn. Later, he loved using the rumor that he was always on the cusp of getting engaged to uh, Barbara Walters, who that time was a young, famous reporter in New York City, and never, ever denied it. And Barbara, in many ways, knew she was helping him out by being a bit of his, his beard, being his cover. And so she never necessarily denied it in public either. And so they're very, very good about telling stories about themselves. They're very good about crafting narratives in a way that allowed them to connect with a certain segments of the American populace that was so important for the work they all happened to be doing. Well, and this theme of gossip is in many ways the theme of the 20th century. I want you to talk to our listeners a little bit about the larger picture. 
there's a gossip industry that arises in the United States. And it's one that Hollywood is using. It's one that politicians are using. But it talk to us a little bit about how that industry gets established and who's getting paid for what. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because we think of a gossip industry as not necessarily a holistic thing, but something, there are all these interrelated things that are being done at different parts in the country and really for different reasons, but tonally they're doing the same thing. So for example, when we think of gossip magazines, one of the th- first things we go to is Hollywood. And the Hollywood gossip magazine, I think was great about crafting narratives. So anything from photo play in the 1920s and the 1930s uh, in earlier magazines that were of course being manipulated by the Hollywood studios to try to craft these narratives about who is Rudolph Valentino dating and who is Myrna Loy been seen with recently and what's going to happen on their next picture. So it's, they're very, very good at crafting stories. That same kind of narrative and narrative building was being engaged in also in New York City, really starting in the late 1800s by a couple of magazines that started working with uh, following New York Society uh, and then Broadway. So uh, Town Topics, led by a uh, former Civil War general named William Dalton Mann, was this fantastically interesting early gossip magazine that allowed readers what gossip magazines give us today, which is this slim view, this kind of lens into a world that we all really, really fascinated about, but don't necessarily know what's going on. So they would cover uh, things that the Vanderbilts were doing, the Astors were doing, but then increasingly as time went on, things that Broadway actors and actresses were engaged in. Now, the money-making aspect of this is such a fascinating question because in some ways they make money by selling advertisements like any media conglomerate does nowadays. Perhaps the more lucrative aspect of the work they were doing was actually making a lot of money through blackmail. So one of my favorite stories about this is has to do with a magazine that inherited the mantle of Town Topics called Broadway Brevities and Society Gossip, which tells you in the title the things they were interested in. They would go around and find out which Wall Street magnets were having affairs, then go to them and say, hey, Mr. Vanderbilt, hey, Mr. Astor, hey, Mr. Carnegie's nephew, if you don't give us 10 grand or whatever it is, we are going to print this in our newspaper. And so they ran this incredibly lucrative kind of racket for many, many years. And fascinatingly enough, the person who put a stop to it, the person who kind of brought it down was Edwin Post, who's perhaps more famous by the fact he was married to uh, a woman at the time named Emily Post before she was the the advice columnist. And Post gets a call or, or you know, a man and uh, meets him in a park saying, I have information that you're cheating on his wife. And Post, instead of rolling over, actually calls the New York Police Department and sets up a sting. And it is said, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the day after the sting, the day after this racket is brought down, when Edwin Post walks onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, he receives a standing ovation. And to sort of continue in our story, J. Edgar Hoover was well-known or suspected to be 
a trafficker in embarrassing information too. Does he learn this from the gossip industry or does he take up a practice that has become commonplace? I don't know if he necessarily learns it from the gossip industry in a one-to-one relationship, but I think he understands the power of information. It is something that perhaps even coming out of Part of the reason, and I know you talked to uh, Beverly Gage about this a few weeks ago, but part of the reason that he gets this meteoric rise early in his career with the FBI is because he survives the Teapot Dome scandal. And as a result, I think he, he realizes that if you have dirt on somebody, it can, yes, make certainly professional hay and, and perhaps PR hay, as the case may be, but it definitely can make political hay. It can make you have this political weapon that is not held necessarily by other people. And it's funny, the two things that people remember, seem to remember in popular culture about J. Edgar Hoover today are stories about his sexuality and purported cross-dressing, but also, oh yeah, J. Edgar Hoover, he had a file on everyone, didn't he? Right. And, you know, in many ways he did, but whether he was, it was less voyeuristic and I think more a means to an end of trying to manipulate Washington in the way he wanted to. And of course, being a son of Washington, D.C., we almost like to think that it was, you know, this is ahistorical, but it was in the water, right? He had been drinking up those power politics since he was a student uh, at high schools in Washington, D.C. and growing up in there. And so whether he learned it from the gossip magazines itself, I'm not 100% sure if it's a one-to-one relationship, but he definitely sees that information is valuable and can be wielded as a cudgel to help yourself along and attack your enemies. And Joe McCarthy has a version of that same story, although part of what's interesting about McCarthy, and I love that section of the book, is he's also just making stuff up all the time. He's making stuff up about himself. He's making stuff up about other people. And so he's using information as a weapon in another way. He's using gossip in another way. How would you distinguish between how Hoover is using gossip and how McCarthy is using gossip? It's interesting. From a very early age, Hoover seems to find himself in a seat of power. And so in many ways, the way that Hoover uses gossip is sometimes to retain power. And now in his first years, he is very much using it as a way uh, to grow the influence of the FBI, grow the influence himself of himself. But McCarthy, he's kind of doing it from the bottom up in many ways, because McCarthy grows up blue collar on a chicken farm in rural Wisconsin. He is, by all accounts, absolutely brilliant. He's able to make it because of rules in the Wisconsin high school system at the time. He's able to test all the way through high school in one year, do basically four years of high school in one year after he returned at the age of 20 after dropping out. And so he's he's this really, really bright young man. And he, I think, very quickly realizes when he gets into his early political career, career running, running as a judge in Wisconsin, that if he can craft a narrative about himself, if he can convince people that he is an average Joe, there is this blue collar masculinity, this blue collar identity that he can inhabit. And so when there are rumors about him doing things that are perhaps 
not things that a senator should necessarily engage in, but playing cards until late at night or going out with one uh, blonde in the office or another. He's very happy to not deny them, and he's very happy that they're out there because, particularly speaking to his constituents in Wisconsin, they tell a story that he wants to be told. This can-do-itness. The best rumor that he makes up about himself and seems to put out is the rumors surrounding his military service during World War II. He was part of a detachment in the South Pacific that, by many accounts, was spending most of its time uh, lounging on the beach far away from the island hopping attempts to get into Japan. But he fashioned himself during his 1946 senatorial campaign as Tail Gunner Joe, as somebody who had flown a number of sorties, had come under fire, was a decorated Marine, and thus had the sheer chutzpah and energy that was necessary for somebody to take on the powers that be in Washington, D.C. And so interestingly enough, this gossip, this idea about himself as a young, energetic, no-holds-barred outsider lets him climb the rungs of power instead of necessarily holding on to power in the way that J. Edgar Hoover was doing it. Yeah. And of course, McCarthy arrives in Washington as this big brash hick from Wisconsin, and he, he's not connected to anybody. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have friends. He doesn't right. have a network. What I also found interesting about McCarthy is that, of course, nowadays, we're fairly used to regular scandals about men and sometimes women who lie about their military service. Right. Um, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And Joe McCarthy's lies about his military service, in a sense, are kind of tame when you compare them to, say, Hillary Clinton claiming to have been under fire in Bosnia right. or, or Dick Blumenthal, who never went to Vietnam at all and said right. he did. But how did you see McCarthy's gossip and rumors as a kind of effort to connect in Mm. Washington? It's a well-phrased question because he's entering at an interesting time. There are not many people in the United States Senate that are female at that time. I think perhaps the only one is Margaret Chase Smith of Maine. He comes in on this wave, Republicans retaking Congress in 1946, and there is this sense of energy. And so in a sense, what McCarthy is doing as an outsider, he's looking for ways to connect, right? He doesn't have the natural connections to power that J. Edgar Hoover has from growing up in a government family in Washington, D.C. He doesn't have the natural connections to power that Roy Cohn has from being the son of a judge in the Bronx. What Joe McCarthy does have, though, is this sense of belonging in an old boys network. He can make connections over cigars, poker tables, and glasses of scotch. And so the way that he tries to define himself, the the rumors that he spreads about himself are all seemingly designed to work his way into what was then very much, and perhaps still is in Washington, D.C., an old boys network of leadership. So even if he's not part of the establishment, even if he hasn't gone to an elite law school or graduated from Exeter or had 
uh, friends that or family that were related to the great capitalists in the country, he can still rely on his masculinity as a way of doing that. And he really does that when he goes off to Washington. Some of the articles about him, even in Wisconsin's hometown press, emphasize Bachelor goes to Washington. What's it going to be like for one of the youngest single men in power? Uh, he tells tricks of how to keep your suit irons and clean, even if you don't have a woman to iron it for you. Of course, with this kind of misogynistic flair that uh, he was famous for. And so it's serving two purposes. It's connecting with his constituents by saying, hey, I'm just like you. I'm just a regular guy going off trying to make good in the world. But it's also connecting to this network in Washington, D.C. of men who are often joking about having relationships when they're in D.C. and then their family back when they're with their constituents. And in at the very beginning, at least, he is very welcomed in that club. Well, and you mentioned that Roy Cohn, of course, is just the opposite. He is all about being connected. I mean, even from the time that he's a teenager, when he marches into the office at Horace Mann School and fixes a traffic ticket for one of his teachers. Tell us a little bit about Roy Cohn. Why is he a man who's all about connection? He learns from his father, who is a Democratic judge in the Bronx, that a well-placed phone call can fix basically anything, right? And so even though I think his dad, he was a Roosevelt uh, Democrat, he was somebody who at certain points considered Franklin Roosevelt a friend or at least a connection. And the so there's this element of his father being connected to power. He doesn't learn a certain element of constitutional law from his father, even though Cohn goes on to be a lawyer. He doesn't learn necessarily a love for justice. He very much learns a love for power, even though I don't think that's the lesson that his father was trying to instill. Interestingly enough, I think that love for power largely comes from his mother, who was from the Marcus family of the Bronx and actually was part of this family that had a lot of banking interests in the area called the Bank of United States, which actually dies in the crash. But the family came from a little bit of wealth. And so Cohn sees power and sees connection as the way to make your way in the world. When he thinks he's done with Columbia University and wants to just go on to law school at Columbia as well, he marches into the dean's office and says, okay, how can we make this happen? He's not somebody who necessarily thinks the rules apply to him. Of course, the big complicating factor in Cohn's life, I think a little bit in New York, and then certainly when he gets to Washington, D.C., is his Judaism, right? So there are these limits on the connections he can make. And I think it puts a chip on his shoulder as to what necessarily is going to get him ahead. Well, and these men have a very different relationship to their sexuality too. I mean, you present a lot of evidence in this book that Joe McCarthy had a lot of sex with men. Mm. How that actually defines him as a human being is another story. But there's a moment in which all of this testimony begins to pour in that he is, in fact, having sex with men and in political setting. For Hoover and Cohn, we have less evidence. And the evidence we have for them is really much more the evidence of insinuation. It's indirect. So what do these three stories tell us about male sexuality during the Cold War? 
That's a good question. I think that Hoover is by far the most circumspect of the three in his personal life and his relationship with his number two employee at the FBI, Clyde Tolson, often talked about not only after Hoover's death, but while he is still living as a marriage. That aside, we have no evidence whatsoever that Hoover actually engaged in sex with Clyde Tolson. It's all circumstantial. It's very compelling circumstantial evidence, but it's all circumstantial as the case may be. McCarthy, I think, comes from a time and a moment where he believes that he can basically do anything and get away with it. And I don't necessarily know if these, these voluminous rumors of him kissing a man on the night that he wins the Republican primary or hanging out in uh, a gay bar in Milwaukee are necessarily true or they're calculated to help bring him down after he gets power. But he seems to live his life in a way uh, he can do whatever he wants and not get caught for it. And that extends to his finances, that extends to his relationship with women. He was for a number of years most famous as the quote unquote Pepsi Cola kid because he had taken money to help the sugar industry in Washington, D.C. with the easing of sugar restrictions uh, and rationing after World War II. And so all three of them have a very different relationship to sexuality. But the thing that I think all three of them tell us is that at this time, even as they're doing it themselves, they seem to come to believe that if they have enough power, their sexuality, so long as it is done behind closed doors, is not necessarily going to be an impediment to their future success. It's apocryphal and it's not true, but the best line to capture Roy Cohn was actually written by Tony Kushner in his play Angels in America, in which the Cone character repeatedly says, I'm not homosexual, I'm too powerful to be homosexual, right? And so whether or not that is something that Roy Cohn said in life, it does capture the essence of, I think, how he certainly thought about his own undisputed homosexuality. And then I think as well, how McCarthy and Hoover would consider their own sexual lives at this moment. I would pair off McCarthy and Cohn because they Mm -hmm. actually become kind of reckless in this situation. Whereas Hoover's attacks on other gay people almost seem calculated to shield him and very carefully calculated to shield him. And he has a whole apparatus for protecting himself. McCarthy and Cohn trick themselves in some ways into believing that they're more powerful than they are. And so we end up in the Army McCarthy hearings. Tell our listeners what the Army McCarthy hearings are and why they're the pivot point for this book. The Army McCarthy hearings happen in the spring of 1954 as a byproduct of this argument that had grown between Joseph McCarthy and his aides and the United States Army towards the end of 1953 and into the early winter of 1954. Basically, McCarthy is flailing. He is incredibly popular, especially among Catholic voters, conservatives, and a certain kind of blue-collar white voter in the United States by 1952, 1953, because he's throwing all these accusations of communism. People think that he is this bulwark 
against communist infiltration in the United States. The fact of the matter is the infiltration that he has been talking about has largely been dealt with in the late 1940s. Communists were trying to infiltrate the United States. There was Soviet spying going on, but by and large, much of it had been taken care of by the time that McCarthy came on the scene by making claims that there were communists in the United States State Department in Wheeling, West Virginia in February 1950. So he's increasingly kind of grasping at straws to try to find something that's going to help continue make his name. And he settles on a series of accusations that the United States Army is basically weak on communism, that they are not getting rid of members in their ranks. He doesn't have much solid evidence for this at all. And part of the reason that historians have gone back and looked at this and said maybe he was angry at the army is because there is somebody on his staff named G. David Shine, who is a young, handsome blonde. Uh, he would go on to marry a Miss Universe who came out of uh, Harvard, had recently graduated, uh, came from a Miami hotel fortune and was an unpaid consultant on the uh, McCarthy team, largely a lot of people think so that the McCarthy team could meet in Shine Hotels and stay there for free as they travel the country. Shine gets his number called in the draft and Cone and McCarthy see this as a personal affront. They try to do what they always do. They pick up the phone and they call the United States military. They call the Navy. They call anybody they can think of they have a connection with to say, hey, can you get our boy out of the draft? Or if you have to take him, can you say that he is officially in uniform but has been moved to Washington, D.C. to help with our investigations? And the military won't play ball. So there is this question about whether or not McCarthy goes after the Army so hard because he actually thinks that this is a route to get things done, or if he and Cohn are angry. Now, the grand rumor that has persisted for many years without any hard evidence is that either Cohn, McCarthy, or both were in love with, enamored with, or having an affair with G. David Shine. And so this had painted an entire kind of sense of homophobic, homoerotic, energy in the relationship. And part of the reason I got to gossip magazines is even though there is this pregnant sense of homoeroticism and homophobia that runs through the resulting Army McCarthy hearings, oftentimes it's not written about in the New York Times or the Washington Star or the Chicago Tribune. You have to either read between the lines or go to other sources Gossip magazines being one of the few that will openly print rumors about McCarthy. So the spring of 1954, the Army McCarthy hearings are these national televised hearings during which the Army and Joseph McCarthy basically face off supposedly about these accusations, but really it's basically this sword measuring contest. It is this contest over who is going to have power. We are told in many mainstream American histories that this has to do with protecting the United States from communist infiltration, maybe a balance of power between the different branches of government, the executive and the uh, legislative, especially given that the president at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, was perhaps the most famous member of the United States Army, recent member of the United States Army in the world, right? But if you look at the Army McCarthy hearings throughout these nationally televised hearings, 
that become the most watched live television event in the history of the medium to that time. There is all of this homoerotic, homophobic, masculinist jousting, this language that is being used. So part of the impetus for this project and the question that I really wanted to answer is why? Why is masculinity such an important thing at this moment? And why is it the language that these men are choosing to use to communicate not only to each other, but consciously communicate to this massive television audience that they are the power in the room? And of course, there are there are brilliant lines that Jack Welsh delivers. I would have to say my favorite one was, did you pay to have your weapon cleaned at Fort Dix? <laughs> um, I had never heard that before. <laughs> and it's just brilliant. But of course, there, there's also that line of uh, when Welsh is trying to get down to who cropped a picture and mm-hmm. he's interrogating someone and says, you know, was it done by a pixie? You know what a pixie is, don't you? It's a kind of fairy. This goes well beyond insinuation. Right. So what is happening as Jack Welsh is tossing off all these bon mots? One of the first things that happens, which is the most fascinating thing, is when he says those lines, the audience breaks into laughter. Right. And you can hear it on both the audio and video recordings. And the fascinating thing about that is you have to think, okay, how did the audience know to laugh at that line? It tells you that to some degree, these rumors, even if they weren't appearing in the Saturday Evening Post and Time, that these rumors were well known throughout Washington. And later I do work in the book showing that they're well known throughout the United States. But I think there is something in there that tells you that this is the language by which people define power at that moment, right? In order to be powerful in Cold War America, in order to be powerful at this moment of the Red Scare, you need to fulfill certain things. And one of those things is masculinist, heteronormative, aggressive, in control, maybe having a sense of you know pregnant uh, violence or the possibility of violence at all times that you, you have this energy, this vigor uh, that you know, Jack Kennedy would still be talking about seven years later. And so the, this, this is the way that these men choose to do battle. And what's fascinating as you think about this is the most popular television shows at the time are all Westerns, right? They're about men facing off on these dusty thoroughfares in, in these Western towns. And the language that they're using to show that they're powerful is through masculine language, right? It, it, it's a moment that because of deep anxieties about the increasing power of women in the United States, the role of men, how men are going to be able to prove their masculinity in the wake of World War II, particularly for a somewhat younger generation, there is this need to constantly remind people that you are, in fact, fulfilling the rigors of masculinity and specifically Cold War masculinity at this time. And so I think it tells us, as much as it tells us about power, it also tells us about anxiety, right? You, you often emphasize or you know, doth protest too mightily, right? In the sense that these men are very anxious that they are going to be found out. And I think that goes for all men in the 1950s and probably in 2023 as well. But it also specifically goes for McCarthy, Hoover, 
and comb because they themselves know that there is evidence to be used to say that regardless of their sexuality, their masculinity is certainly in question. This whole question of masculinity is, of course, completely tied to national security, which I think you know, is a great argument you make in the book. And, and you can really see this thread throughout the 20th century in which anxieties about boyhood and manhood are all about whether the nation can survive. Mm. But there's, there's another piece about this book too. Let me just say, I think it establishes sort of the beginning of an American political tradition that produces Donald Trump. <laughs> and you you allow Donald Trump on stage ever so briefly at the end of the book. I don't think that's giving a lot away for our mm-hmm. listeners. But I also thought Joe McCarthy really reminded me of Trump without the canniness, perhaps without the entitlement, but the bluster, the risk taking, the idea that if you're on the ropes, all you have to do is punch harder. Mm -hmm. The lawsuits. I just found that to be a striking comparison. Joe McCarthy is he he actually boxed at Marquette. So this this metaphor about him being boxer is really apt. And the way people describe him, he wasn't somebody who was going to very smartly pull a rope adobe or some kind of sweet science like Muhammad Ali would. He was an absolute brawler. He was just throwing haymakers and trying to land one before he got knocked down himself. And that metaphor certainly extends to his political career. There is this certain energy that he brought with him and a willingness to, largely without shame, present information that he thought was going to help himself. The great story about this from his early career is when he is in college running for president. He makes a pact with the person that he is running against and say, hey, for a show of decency, we're going to vote for each other come election day. And he follows through and it's a tie vote. So then they do a second round of voting, and McCarthy ends up winning by two votes. His opponent kind of looks at the numbers and looks at Joe, and you can see the light bulb go off in his head. And he says, Joe, did you vote for yourself? And he says, yeah, you wanted me to vote for the best man, didn't you? Later, that opponent tells a story about how Joe McCarthy was one of the few people that showed up to his father's funeral in a rented car and I think a borrowed suit. And so McCarthy has this sense of himself, I think... The protagonist of his own story, which is certainly something we've been talking about recently in American culture, but he has a sense of himself as somebody who is the most important person in the room. And if he says it, then it is true, right? Even if he cornered, he would tell you, oh, it's probably made up. It's probably totally BS. But as long as he is in control, he is going to make the right decisions for you. Don't worry about it. So power becomes its own end, right? Uh, And I think that is very Trumpian. And then, of course, the the most direct connection to Trump is through Roy Cohn and the way that Roy Cohn serves as Trump's lawyer in the 70s and 1980s when the Trump Foundation is being sued by numerous groups. The Trump Organization, I should say, is being sued by numerous people, but most uh, notably the federal government for having inequitable housing and racist housing practices in a number of their a number of their buildings in New York City and elsewhere. And my favorite story about that moment and, and the way that you have this line directly from McCarthy to Trump through Roy Cohn is that after they have settled, after the 
Trump organization has basically admitted to being caught uh, engaging in these racist practices by the federal government, the Federal Housing Authority. Cohn goes out and stands in front of a microphone and says, we're so glad that today the United States government has capitulated and said that the Trump organization has done nothing wrong. Because Cohn, like McCarthy, and ultimately like Trump, realizes and very clearly teaches Trump that it doesn't matter what the truth is as long as you can dominate the headline because people are only going to read the headlines. And I think I, you know, he means that, or I mean that both uh, metaphorically and literally. So Chris, here's a question I ask at the end of all the interviews, which is why should our listeners read this book now? I think the book gives us a space to think through the roots of misinformation in American politics. And I know a lot of historians are very quick to jump up and say, well, wait a minute, there's a history there. But what I mean by that is I think we've come to believe that the internet and more recently social media are the be all and end all of our problems. And if there is a problem with misinformation, lying, gossip and disinformation in American politics, we can perhaps point to the easy manipulation of that on the internet. But the fact of the matter is that there is something in American politics, there is something in the free expression that we all cherish so much that allows for this kind of manipulation. And to solve it, it's going to, it was around in uh, 1954, and to solve it, we're going to have to think more deeply about what it means to be American and what it means to be a political actor in the United States uh, and move beyond merely just blaming Silicon Valley for all of our ills. I don't see Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination in 2024. We will be listening to him for a long time, but the ideas that he has brought to the fore in American politics are embodied in Roy Cohn, Uh, They're embodied in Joe McCarthy and to uh, maybe perhaps a lesser degree in J. Edgar Hoover. And those ideas are not going anywhere. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.